Amen. We'll take your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Numbers. Once again, we are going to be uh, surveying several chapters, chapters 7 through 10. Not reading every verse, as you might imagine. Uh, but we'll be hitting some of the highlights throughout these chapters. And to get us started, I want to read uh, Numbers 9, verses 15 through 23. And those are the verses that will appear on the screens in front of you. Numbers 9, 15 through 23. Here's what it says. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your command, for your good word. We thank you for your guidance. And we thank you, above all, that we can trust you and that you always guide us well, that Jesus doeth all things well. We pray that this morning as we look at these words, that you would guide us into the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You have probably heard, I'm sure that you've heard, that old cliche, God never gives us more than we can handle, right? God never gives us more than we can handle. I'm sure that you've heard that. It's one of those things that that uh, we sometimes say to each other to comfort each other in hard times, or that we say uh, to ourselves to encourage ourselves in hard times, God never gives us more than we can handle. And I, I think that there is a way of thinking about that that's true, right? If we understand that in the right way, there's a sense in which that's true. It's true in the sense that when God takes us into hard times and gives us difficulties, uh, he does it in order to drive us to himself, and he then gives us the strength to handle what he gives us. So if we understand it that way, there's, there, you know, that's a right way to understand it. I suspect, though, that when most people out there use that phrase, express that sentiment, God never gives us more than we can handle, uh, those who, who use it and they don't really know the Lord well or don't know the scriptures well, which is really two ways of saying the same thing, isn't it? Um, they, they mean something wrong. They're thinking about it wrongly. Most people, I think, when they use that phrase, God never gives us more than we can handle, what they think that they're saying, what they're expressing is this idea that if God lets you go through difficult times, that that must mean that you have strength in yourself to meet that need. 
or that if God lets you go through hard times, then that's kind of almost a, a, something you can be proud of because God's saying, here's how much you can handle, and I'm, I'm showing you how much you can handle, or something like that. And that, we know, is not true. In that case, or understood that way, we understand God regularly gives us more than we can handle. God regularly gives us more than we can handle, but when he does, he does it specifically for that purpose of driving us to our knees, of of driving us to himself, so that we can find in him the resources that we need. And then we can find that in him, that he is sufficient, that while we ourselves are insufficient to any task that we might face, God is never insufficient. God is entirely sufficient, and he gives himself to us. And and so for that reason, God sometimes does give us more than we can handle so that we can learn that truth. And And that's really just another way of saying what I've already expressed to you this morning is the point of our message today as we're looking at Numbers 7 through 10, that this journey that God calls his people to make is also a journey for which he himself makes all the provisions. Or to say it more in line with that old cliche, the journey that God calls his people to make is one which we in ourselves don't have the resources for. We can leave the, the, the sentence up there for a few minutes, thanks. Yeah, that helps me too, so I can remember what I'm supposed to say. You know, <laughs> you know God, God calls us to go on this journey, and, and we don't necessarily have all of the resources for it. But we can trust that if he has called us to make the journey, he himself will make all the provisions for it. The journey that God calls his people to make is a journey for which he makes all the provisions. We have been seeing in this book of Numbers that uh, Moses, at the command of God, has numbered all of the people, the, the, the fighting men of Israel, and prepared them and ordered them for their march away from Sinai on the next phase of their wilderness journey. And now, in these chapters, we're seeing that the Lord is preparing the Israelites to break camp and journey on toward the promised land. So at this point, Moses is going to give us a few chapters that contain some important information about what has already been revealed to them by God and put in place prior to this. So for example, if you go to the first verse of chapter 7, look back a few pages, Numbers chapter 7, verse 1. It says, On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings, etc., so, so this is a little time clue about where chapters 7 and 8 fall in the chronology. If you remember, Numbers 1 began with the first day of the second month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. But from the end of Exodus, we know that the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month of the second year. So in, in essence, what Moses is saying here at the beginning of chapter 7 is, oh yeah, I have to give you some more information about some stuff that had already happened. So he's going back a month. to to what had happened when the tabernacle got set up. So chapters 7 and 8 are are looking back at some things that had already happened because it's going to contain some important information to prepare us for what's going to happen next as they set out from Sinai and go on on their their journey. By the time we close this morning, uh, by the time we get through chapter 10, we're going to see Israel having set out and uh, journeyed through the wilderness a little bit and then encamped again in the wilderness of Paran, which is uh, outside, uh, more immediately outside the borders of Israel, uh, the borders of the Promised Land, the borders of Canaan. It is from Paran that they're going to send out the spies into the Promised Land. Paran is going to be the the context where they're going to sit for a while, and some of the next stories in Numbers are going to come from there. So actually, this is probably a good time, too, for me to give you a heads up about where we're going for the next several weeks. My plan next 
Sunday, the 25th, is to look at Numbers chapter 11, where we're going to see the spies. Uh, no, sorry, chapter 11 is where we're going to see some of the, the complaining of the people there in the wilderness of Paran. And then uh, the next Sunday, March 3rd, we're going to see Numbers chapter 12, and then March 10th, Numbers 13 through 14. And then on March 17th, Lord willing, Numbers 15. And then, as you can see, March 24th and March 35th are uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, respectively. So we're going to be taking a little break from Numbers at that time and focus on Easter. And then actually the Sunday after that, the first Sunday of April, we're going to take a break and, and have a special missions emphasis Sunday. So we'll have a kind of a three-week um, three week interval uh, from our number series. But that kind of gives you an idea of where we're going for the next several weeks. And one of my purposes in giving you that here uh, at the introduction of today's sermon is so that you can be thinking ahead and reading ahead. I encourage you to think about that. So come next week having read Numbers chapter 11, and you'll be that much more prepared. In fact, come next week not only having read Numbers 11, but having written down any questions that you have or things that confuse you about it. Not because I'm going to answer all of them in my sermon, but because if I don't, then you can come up to me after the sermon and say, hey, what about this? You know, and then we can all be even better prepared for what the Lord might have to say to us in his word. Today, though, we're looking at these three or four chapters, Numbers 7 through 10, and we're going to consider four things for which God makes provision for us on his journey. They're printed on the back of your bulletin. Number one, he makes provision for generosity on the journey. Number two, purity on the journey. Number three, communication on the journey. And number four, guidance on the journey. The journey that God calls his people to make is also a journey for which he makes all the provisions. So consider, first of all, how the Lord provides for generosity on the journey. Look at Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7 is a long chapter. We're not going to read all of it this morning, but I do want to read the first 11 verses to help us understand what generosity looked like for the Israelites as they were preparing to go out on their wilderness journey. Number 7, 1 through 11. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all of its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all of its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for each two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day that it was anointed. And the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. So what we see happening here is that the, the tribes of Israel are bringing these gifts so far, the only gifts listed are the gifts of wagons and oxen, which clearly are meant to be used for the transportation of the holy things. And as Moses explains, the exception to this are the things that had to be carried by the Kohathites on the shoulder, the Ark of the Covenant and things like that, that they were supposed to carry themselves, not to be put on wagons drawn by oxen, a little 
piece of trivia that David and his followers are later going to forget in Israel's history to their, to their shame. Um, but, but these are the things that are given by the tribes for the transportation of the tabernacle. And not only are they giving gifts for the transportation of the tabernacle, but as the rest of chapter 7 goes on to describe, they give gifts for the service in the tabernacle as well. So uh, what chapter 7 goes on to do is list all 12 of the tribes of Israel and their chiefs who come with a specific offering, each of them. And there's a whole lot of repetition throughout chapter 7. So we're not going to read it all, but I am going to read the first paragraph so that you get a feel for what the rest of the chapter looks like. So go along with me while I read verses 12 and following where it describes the offering from the tribe of Judah. Okay, verse 12. He who offered his offering the first day was Nashon, the son of Amminadab of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver plate, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Amminadab. And each successive paragraph in chapter 7 goes along in the same vein. All of the tribes of Israel bring exactly the same offering. That's important to note. But what's, what's interesting is that Moses is not content to just say, they all brought this. They all brought the same thing. He goes to the trouble of we might say, wasting ink, to describe it over and over and over again. Twelve times he repeats it. They all brought the same thing. It's as though he wants to point out the fact that each tribe is bringing exactly the same offering to the tabernacle. They're all bringing uh, these silver plates and basins. Uh, in modern terms, it's a, it's a silver plate that weighs about three pounds, a silver basin that weighs about a pound and a half, a golden dish or a spoon might actually be a better translation of the Hebrew word there that's about four ounces. And then, of course, all these animals, which is really where the, most of the wealth is contained in all these animals that are brought. And then, of course, we have to ask the question, well, why is it that Moses goes to the trouble of describing all of this in such detail, uh, 83 verses worth through chapter 7? And I have to think that part of his purpose is to say that although the tribes are of different sizes, and they are of different sizes, right? If you go back to chapter 1, you see that uh, the, the number of the fighting men, to the extent that that represents the size of the tribe, you see that they're all very different sizes, right? The tribe of Judah is the largest with 74,000 of, of fighting men, something like that. And you have the tribe of, um, I feel like it's Manasseh or Ephraim, one of the smaller tribes with less than half of that. So there's this vast divergence of size among the tribes. But here, they're all bringing the same offering to the tabernacle. I think there's a, there's a lot of implications in that. One of them, of course, is that the, the size of the tribe doesn't matter in terms of the share that they have in the service of the Lord. They all have equal claim to the service of the Lord. They all have equal claim to God, if we could put it that way. They all belong to him. It's important, too, to think about it in these terms. Where did, where did this wealth come from, Right? Where did all the silver and gold and animals come from? And we remember, of course, that as, is, as Israel was coming out of Egypt, God told them, ask your Egyptian neighbors 
for their articles of gold and their articles of silver. And in Exodus, it says that God gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and the Egyptians gave them <laughs> whatever they asked. Can you imagine going to your neighbors and saying, I really like that, uh, that gold plate on the wall there. Can I have it? You know, That wasn't quite as weird a thing in that culture as it would be in ours. But whether it was weird or not, God told them to do it, and they did it, and the Egyptians gave them all this stuff. It's kind of God's way of giving them the back pay. It's a very ironic part of the story. All those years of slavery, God says, you're going to get paid for it. And it says in Exodus, and so they plundered the Egyptians, right? And we see to some extent that, that they're, they're giving out of that generosity with which God had provided for them. We saw that already in the book of Exodus when God gives them direction for the, for the building of the tabernacle and the collection of resources for the construction of the tabernacle and all of the accoutrements of the tabernacle. It says that the people gave so generously. This is in Exodus 35 or 36, somewhere in that vicinity. It says they gave so generously that they had to be restrained. Moses and Aaron and the rest of them had to say, stop bringing stuff. We already have more than we need. Right? But here's another opportunity here in number seven for them to give. And they rise to the occasion. They give generously. Now, what does this teach us as we think about generosity? Well, it's tempting at this point, And if I were a prosperity gospel preacher, I would probably do it something like this. I would say, you know, these tribes are all of different sizes. Some of them are populous and some of them are not so populous. But they all give at the same level. Which means if you have enough faith, you can dig deep. And you can give until it hurts. It doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or not. Just give as everything you can give. And the Lord will bless you. And then I can go buy my private jet. Right? <laughs> but we all know that's not the right way to read this. right? That's not the point of this story. So, so what is the point? I think the point is simultaneously much simpler, much simpler to understand, and much more complex in working out. It's simpler in the sense that the, the principle is to whom much is given... Much is expected. The Israelites had been given much. God allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. He gave them great financial wealth. And because of that, he expected them to give generously. The New Testament rewords this this way. It says, as the Lord has prospered you, give. That's the New Testament principle. As the Lord has prospered, you give. But it's the same thing. To the extent that the Lord prospers you, you're expected to share your prosperity with others. That means more than just giving to the church. Although, let me be clear, it includes giving to the church. Right? But it could also look like just helping others. As you find out other people's needs, you help them. Or as you hear about charities that are worthy of supporting, you, you give to those. Or missionaries who need support. These are all ways that we are good stewards of the prosperity with which God has blessed us. Now, the reason I say that's harder to put into practice or more complex to put into practice is because it requires you to think through what, what is your situation? To what extent have you been blessed by God? And that's a hard question to answer because we have a tendency as humans always to look at ourselves in comparison to others and we say, well, obviously, I don't have as much as that person, so I haven't been blessed as much. I haven't been prospered as much. And that might be true. 
And so you have to use wisdom, in other words. You have to use discretion. And you can't, you can't expect someone else to say, you should give this much. You should give this percentage of your income, and then you will be a faithful Christian. It doesn't work that way. You have to think through how you've been blessed. You have to think through what ways God has, has prospered you and what faithful generosity looks like in response to that. Right? And so it becomes a complex thing to answer, doesn't it? At any rate, the Lord is the one, and this is really the, the main point here, it is the Lord who is the one who provides all this. You know, chapter 7 shows us the heads of these tribes bringing their offerings to the tabernacle, but what they're bringing to the tabernacle is that which God had already given to them, right? Which just goes back to our original point. The journey that God calls his people to make is also a journey for which he himself makes all of the provisions. So we see generosity on the journey. We see his provision for purity on the journey as well. If you turn over to chapter 8, verse 5, you see the, the uh, provision for the purification or the cleansing of the Levites. Look at Numbers 8, verses 5 and following. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them. Let them go with a razor over all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Then let them take a bull from the herd and its grain offering a fine flour mixed with oil. And you shall take another bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. And when you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. And the chapter goes on from there to describe you know, the further rituals for the cleansing of the Levites. Now, at this point, you have to understand that this is a separate cleansing. You might remember a similar cleansing that happened back when we were in Leviticus, right? In Leviticus chapter 8, we read about the cleansing, the purification of Aaron and his sons, the priests which looks kind of similar to this in some ways. And so you might read this and go, well, is this a second cleansing? Is this a second purification? What's, or is it a redundant repeating of, of what happened in Leviticus 8? What you have to remember is that priests and Levites are two different groups, right? All priests are Levites. Not all Levites are priests, okay? So what we read about in Leviticus 8 is the cleansing of Aaron and his sons and, and that group of people who are actually going to be doing the work of priests in the tabernacle. They're the ones who are going to be um, slaughtering the sacrifices and burning the sacrifices, doing the work of the tabernacle. But that's just a subset of the tribe of Levi, right? They're the only ones who went through the cleansing ritual in Leviticus 8. Here in Numbers, what we're reading about is the cleansing of the whole tribe of Levi so that they will be ready to carry and, and, to, and to pack up and unpack and to, and to transport all of the accoutrements of the tabernacle and do everything else that's necessary. They need to be cleansed. They need to be pure so they can, they can carry the pure and holy things. So God... Uh, provides for that. This is preparation for what's going on next, right? But we see not only the cleansing of the Levites here, there's a sense in which we see a cleansing of the rest of the Israelites as well. If you skip over to chapter 9, we read about the, uh, the, the Passover as it's celebrated by the, tribe of, the tribes of Israel as a whole. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover 
at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all of its statutes and all of its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So the people of Israel did. Verse 6. There were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, We are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, Wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. So here's the situation, right? God is telling them, you have to keep the Passover. And remember, the Passover is such a vital part of Israel's observance of their, of their religion, right? The Passover was their annual reminder of how God had rescued them from Israel, uh, from, from Egypt. It was a week-long celebration. The Passover itself immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this was a constant reminder to them. It was supposed to be, God ordained it to be, throughout their generations, of how he had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. But if you go back and read the regulations about the Passover in Exodus, one of the things that strikes you is that if you observe the Passover improperly, you need to be cut off from your people. If you allow leaven in your house during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you're to be cut off from your people. If you eat the Passover and you're unclean, you need to be cut off from your people. And as we're going to read later on in this chapter, anybody who is clean and fails to keep the Passover is to be cut off from among their people. And do you know what it means to be cut off from among your people? It means you're kicked out. And if you're kicked out, that doesn't just mean you get to go off and live on a ranch by yourself. You know, we hear that and we go, that doesn't sound so bad. It sounds kind of nice. But in Israel, what that meant was you're out of the covenant you're gone. You no longer have a relationship with Yahweh, your God. So this is a big deal. And so here are this group of people who are unclean, not through their own fault or anything, but they're just ceremonially unclean. And they come and they say, what do we do? We don't want to mess this up, right? We don't want to mess this up. So what do we do? So there's the problem. Moses says, wait, let me talk to the Lord. Let's, let's carry on in chapter 9, verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover of the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day, at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall keep it. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. So here's the Lord's provision. He says, if people are unclean during the regular Passover, just tell them to wait a month and they can have a makeover, a makeup, a do-over, right? So the original Passover is supposed to be on the 14th day of the first month. So here God says, if you're unclean during that time, you can observe the Passover on the 14th day of the second month, right? 
This also serves to explain why when we get to chapter 10, verse 11, where it says, when they departed from Sinai, it'll tell us they departed on the 20th day of the second month of the second year. In other words, what's happening here is Moses is saying, maybe you're reading the story and you're wondering why it took us so long to leave. Here's the reason. There were some guys who were unclean for the first Passover, so we all had to wait around for another month so that they could celebrate it in the second month. And then when they had finished celebrating the makeup Passover, when that was done, we set out. You see? But I just want you to think about this for a second. God is so gracious to his people, right? He's so concerned that his people be able to celebrate him and enjoy him and reflect on how he has redeemed them that he makes this provision for those who who weren't able to celebrate the first Passover. And not only that, but he makes the whole congregation of Israel sit there at Sinai for an extra month so that this one group of people can have the experience that he has ordained for them. Isn't that a picture? Isn't that a portrait of the graciousness and the patience of our God. Through all this, we see God providing for his people. I've called it his provision for the purity uh, of his people on their journey, but really it's just a provision of, of relationship with him and what that looks like in different contexts. God provides for all of his people to experience his grace and forgiveness. God provides for generosity on the journey. He provides for purity on the journey. He provides, third, for communication on the journey. Look at chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets. Of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast, but you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies." On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord, your God. Trumpets. It's fitting we have trumpets in our, in our worship service today, right? It's interesting, though. Have you noticed when, when Heather's played for us, she's had to, had to mute it the past couple of times, right? Because in our little sanctuary, that trumpet fills the room. I think that's kind of the point, right? Trumpets are loud. They carry throughout the whole camp. And and God ordains these trumpets that could be used for these different purposes. And and they communicate different things. And it goes through details of of what the different sounds mean and how how to communicate with them. 
But the point that I want to lay before you this morning is just that they're used for different things. They, they communicate information about how and when the Israelites are going to travel. They communicate information about war and battle. And they communicate information about gladness. All kinds of things. But the commonality among them is its communication. This is a way that the whole people of Israel can be brought in and put on the same page about what's going on. Nobody is to be left out. Everybody is supposed to know what's going on. That's what the trumpets accomplish. What God's people do, they do together. I think when we think about trumpets in the Bible, if we think about it in those terms, we won't go far wrong in understanding their significance. Trumpets are a symbol of the fact that what God's people do, they do together. Trumpets call God's people together, put them all on the same page. This includes not only what we read about here in Numbers 10, but it includes God's people being gathered together to the Lord on the final day. Do you ever wonder why it is that whenever the Bible talks about the day of judgment, it always includes the sound of a trumpet? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is speaking into a setting where people were confused about what would happen when the day Jesus returns. They were worried that they might be left out. They were worried that maybe Jesus had come back and, and, and taken some people secretly, or they were worried that those who died before Jesus' return might be left out of the situation. They were worried, in other words, that some people, either themselves or others, would be left out. And so into that concern... Paul writes this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We will be caught up together. You see, what God's people do, they do together. The trumpet will call all of God's people together. Paul says he heard this as a word from the Lord, which I take to mean that Jesus revealed this to him as he's giving it to the Thessalonians. But Jesus had revealed this during his earthly ministry to his disciples already, hadn't he? Listen to these words from Jesus in Matthew 24. Jesus is, is speaking in Matthew 24, and he's, he's just finished saying to them, listen, in the last days, there's going to be people who try to trick you and say that the Christ is over there hiding and he's secret and you have to go over to him. Don't believe them. Don't believe anybody who says that something's happening in secret. <laughs> Jesus' point is nothing's going to happen in secret. The trumpets are going to sound. Everybody's going to know. Listen to what he says. Matthew 24, 27. As the lightning comes from the east... And shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heavens and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. There will be nothing happening in secret. You see the point of all of this? Nobody needs to be afraid of being left out. The trumpet signifies the fact that what God's people do, they do together. They set out together on the journey. They set out to war together. They celebrate together. Nobody ever needs to be afraid of being left out. Nobody in the camp of Israel ever had to worry about waking up late and coming out of his tent and finding everybody else gone. (laughs) That was not a concern, right? Everybody's going together. Brothers and sisters, The New Testament insists that this is a cause of encouragement and comfort to us. We are not alone. We are a people made to be together. This means, for one thing, that we don't need to be afraid of missing anything in this journey. We don't need to be afraid of not getting news in time. If we belong to the Lord, we will receive his communication. When Jesus returns, we will know it. Friends, I don't know if this applies to you. I don't know if you have anxiety about end times. There are many Christians who do, and I want to encourage you, you don't need to. As you belong to Jesus, you will not miss out. You'll be fine. Be comforted. This also means that until Jesus returns, we need to be deliberate about being in communication with each other. If the sounding of the trumpets is meant to have any kind of practical implication, it means that we need to be deliberate about communicating. Right? I think this means, amongst other things, that we need to be more deliberate about communicating our needs, including our needs for prayer. Right? We need to talk to each other about our prayer needs, about our financial needs, about our family needs, about our health needs. We need to talk to each other. One of the banes of pastors everywhere, I've talked to so many pastors who have expressed this, is this habit that some have of being very private about everything going on in their life. And then when they end up going into the hospital or something, they get mad when the pastor doesn't come and visit them. But they've been private about everything their whole life. You know, I trust this is not true of any of you. But I think this is something that we need to ask ourselves. Are we being, in some kind of prideful way, unnecessarily private? I don't mean that you shouldn't have privacy. I'm not trying to say that we all need to know everything about each other. But I'm saying we are supposed to be a community. We're supposed to be a family. How can we be deliberate about communicating our needs to each other? Communication on the journey. The Lord provides for it. The journey that God calls his people to make is a journey for which he himself makes all the provisions. And this takes us to our fourth and final point, the fourth thing that God provides for his people, which is guidance on the journey. And I save this one for last um, because I think it's perhaps the most important of the four. The Israelites' guidance on this journey came from the Lord. Look back at chapter 7, the very last verse. Number 7, verse 89. There are not many chapters of the Bible that have that many verses. Number 7, verse 89 
It says, when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. The Lord is there above the ark of the covenant, right? You remember the Ark of the Covenant, as we described it, being constructed in the book of Exodus. It's this box, right? It's not a very big box. You know, sometimes we see it depicted in Raiders of the Lost Ark or, or just in, 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 in uh, books or pictures. It makes it look like a big box. This is three and a half to four feet long. It's two feet high and two feet wide. This is not a large box, is it? The scriptures tell us that it is a box. It contains in it the tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments. It has a bowl of manna, right? And then later in scripture, in fact, later in the book of Numbers, we're going to read about a third thing that gets put into it, which is Aaron's rod, which will, uh, later on in Numbers, we're going to read the story of how it blossoms and bears fruit and is eventually put in the ark as well. So it's a hollow box with some stuff in it, but it's also a beautiful box with filigreed gold all around it and these carved cherubim on it. And it's very clear that this is not just a box, but it's supposed to be understood as a kind of throne for the Lord. And that's how we see it being represented here. God is there enthroned above the cherubim. It's from there that he speaks to Moses. But this isn't just a throne in the sense that it's a stationary object. It has rings in its corners and poles that are going to be put through it so that the Kohathites, the, the, the tribe of Levi entrusted with it, can put it on their shoulders and carry it. Which means it's not just a throne, it's a portable throne. It's like a litter that a king sits on in ancient uh, Near East. Can you picture royalty on a litter being carried by four slaves? That's the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. This is Yahweh's mobile throne. This is the Lord's chariot throne. And from it, the king is speaking to his commander-in-chief. He's speaking to Moses. That's the picture here. It's the king enthroned on his chariot, speaking to the commander of his army, giving him instructions. That's the picture that we read in Numbers 789. And it goes on in chapter 8, and it describes the lamps that are there too. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When he set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work. So it reminds us here of what the tabernacle looks like. In front of the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, where the ark was, where God is enthroned, from the holy place, there's this lamp. And it reminds us that the lamp is constructed with flowers which reminds us what the lamp is supposed to be symbolic of. It's supposed to be symbolic of the tree of life. This isn't just a a functional thing that gives light, although it does that. This is a symbolic thing. It's supposed to remind the worshiper. It's supposed to remind the priests of the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle is a recovery of Eden. Do you see? Just as God in the Garden of Eden spoke to Adam, his priest, so here God in this recovered, renewed Eden is speaking in the midst of the symbolic tree of life to the new Adam. These are all the pictures that are wrapped up in this. This is where God's guidance is. It's it's as though God is saying, there's a recovery, there's a return to what was lost here in the tabernacle. And this is where the guidance comes from. And so it's with this guidance from the Lord 
that they take their first step. If you look at chapter 10, verse 11, it says, In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. And then the rest of chapter 10 goes on to describe the order in which the tribes broke camp and set out. And we already read in chapter 9 about how they followed the cloud. When the cloud of glory lifted up from the tabernacle, they set out. And when the cloud settled, they camped. We're not going to recover. uh, We're not going to reread those verses now. But I want to point out a few things before we close this morning about God's guidance of his people. Three things. The first is Moses' prayer. Look at the end of chapter 10. Look at the end of chapter 10, verse 35 and 36. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. What is this? We could read this as just kind of a worshipful benediction type of a blessing, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a worshipful statement. God's enemies will flee before him, and God in faithfulness returns to his people. It could be read that way. But I think it's, it's more faithful to read it in the way that it's written as a prayer. It, it, it's written as a request. Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from you. Lord, return. These are things that Moses is praying. May this be true, Moses is saying. Now, do you think that Moses has any doubt that these things will be true? Do you think there's any doubt in Moses' mind that God's enemies will scatter before him? No. Do you think there's any doubt in Moses' mind that the Lord will return to the thousand thousands of Israel? No. So why does he pray it? And herein we have encapsulated the dilemma that those who want to cause dilemmas for themselves have when it comes to prayer. Why, if God is sovereign over all things, why, if God is all-powerful and all-good and knows what he's going to do, why should I bother to pray? If I know that God's going to provide for my needs, why should I ask him to provide for my needs? If I know that God is going to take care of, of, of the thing that concerns me, why should I ask him to do it? If I know that God will save all of his people, why should I pray for him to save the lost? Notice, this is no dilemma for Moses. He does not feel these things to be in conflict. Moses gives us an example of someone. And by the way, he's not an outlier in redemptive history. Every single faithful person of God is just like him. Moses has no doubt that God's enemies will flee before him. And yet he says, Lord, make your enemies flee before you. Moses has no doubt that God in his faithfulness will return to the people of Israel. And yet he prays, Lord, return to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And so we too, as we pray, can say on the one hand, I know for certain that God will meet my needs, but I will still pray, Father, please provide for my needs. I know for certain that God will save all of his people, and yet I will still pray fervently for the salvation of my lost neighbor. There is no contradiction here. When we pray, we're not giving God information that he doesn't have. Nor are we only honoring him 
by trying to align our values with his, although that's closer, I think, to what's happening in prayer. But rather, we are admitting that at the same time, God is entirely sovereign over all things and is not changeable and does not change his mind and is not swayed by anything. And also, that as a loving father, he hears the words of his children and responds with a loving heart. And I don't know how those things work perfectly together, but I see them both, and I'm laying them before you. So I think Moses here is an example to us of faithful prayer. That's the first thing. Second thing, we see that the Israelites' guidance in the desert is entirely based on the Lord's sovereign movement. We've already talked about this, right? When the glory cloud the so-called Shekinah glory. You've heard that term. I've used it before. It refers to the dwelling glory of God, that pillar of smoke by day, pillar of fire by night. When that cloud rises from the tabernacle, they set out. When it settles down on the tabernacle, they make camp, right? But I want you to think about what that meant on a daily basis for the Israelites. We've already talked about how the Israelites' camp was pitched in such a way that they're all facing the tabernacle at the center. What would it mean for you if you knew that your day was to be orchestrated entirely by the position of that cloud over the tabernacle? What would be the first thing that you looked at when you came out of your tent in the morning? Where's the cloud? (laughs) Has it moved up or is it still stationary? That's going to dictate your day, right? It's just one more way that God shows us that his people's daily life is attuned, is focused entirely on him. It's based entirely on the Lord's sovereign movement. That's the second thing. The third thing is this. The Lord's guidance, while being entirely orchestrated by his sovereign design and movement, is also communicated through human wisdom. Look at verse 29 of chapter 10. Numbers 10, 29. Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you for the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he, that is Hobab, said to Moses, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. And he said, please do not leave us for you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever the Lord will do to us, the same will we do to you. Now, some commentators have read this and seen this as an act of unfaithfulness on Moses' part, that that he should have just trusted Yahweh and and the movement of the glory cloud. But here he seems to want some human input too. He's asking this man Hobab to be their guide in the wilderness. So he's being unfaithful. And yet I suggest to you that that there's no reason to read it that way. There is no rebuke of Moses for this. So what's going on here? How do we we justify these two ideas? That on the one hand, Israel is entirely dependent on the sovereign movement of God. And at the same time, Moses seems to find value in the human advice of his his brother-in-law. Well, it's simply this. Actually, it kind of goes back to something that that Bill reminded us of in in our singing earlier. That God, while he doesn't always tell us what's miles ahead, will sometimes give us information about the next steps. Or to put it another way, God tells us what the final end is, where we're going, and and he'll give us the very next step, but he doesn't always tell us what's in between. And so sometimes it's valuable for us to get other human input to know how to get from here to there. 
Or, if you want to put it in terms of Israel in the wilderness, think about it this way. Imagine that Shekinah glory of God, the glory cloud lifting up from the tabernacle and moving out into the wilderness. And all the people of Israel are packing up, breaking camp, and starting to follow. But remember, this is, first of all, it's a large camp. It's thousands and thousands of people, maybe millions, depending on how you read it. And they're traveling over a large stretch of territory. The glory cloud is way over there. I don't know how to get from here to there, let alone from here to the place where the glory cloud is finally going to stop at the end of the day. Maybe this route to getting there is better than that route to getting there. And it is not unfaithful for me to get some advice from someone who knows the territory, is it? I think that's what's happening here. Moses is saying, we're following Yahweh. But we could also use a man with with, with boots on the ground. You know? which simply means in terms of application for us, that as we seek to closely follow the Lord, there is value in talking with other human beings, especially as Christians value in in hearing the godly counsel of others who are more mature in the faith than we are, who, as it were, know the terrain better than we do. And in fact, sometimes that's how the Lord communicates his path to us. The Lord provided Hobab also, didn't he? He's there because of the Lord's provision. The journey that God calls his people to make is a journey for which he himself makes all of the provision. God's people have always been on a journey. God's people have always been on a journey. I think if you were to look for one motif throughout redemptive history, it would be that of the journey. Adam went on a journey out of the Garden of Eden after the first sin. Abraham was sent on a journey away from his home. Jacob was sent out on a journey away from his home. Moses went out on a journey away from his home and spent his life, didn't he, on this journey. Israel here is on a journey away from one home, Egypt, and on their way to a better home in the promised land. And Israel would go out on journey again when they are sent out into exile later in their history. Even when we get to the New Testament and read the stories of the apostles and the other early Christians, we see the common theme being them being sent out on journey, on mission for the Lord, going from one place to another, carrying the gospel. Why is there such an often repeated theme of God's people being on journey, being sent out? I think it's, amongst other things, because it reflects the fact that our God is a journeying God. God ordained a journey for himself, the greatest journey of all, didn't he? Jesus went on the furthest journey, the longest journey, the hardest journey from heaven to earth, if we could put it that way. And he undertook that journey for us. And it's worth noting, too, and with this I'll close this morning. It's worth noting, too, that at the most needful moment of Jesus' journey... He did not experience the guidance of his father, did he? At the most needful moment of his journey, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't have the guidance of God. He relinquished the guidance of his father. And he did that so that, precisely so that, we would never, ever be abandoned by it. You are guided on your journey by Yahweh, 
because Jesus willingly abandoned that when he was on the cross. He did this for us. Jesus provided what we need for our journey by relinquishing it on his own. The journey that God calls his people to make is one for which he himself ultimately makes all of the provisions. 